Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. We're back after forever. It's literally been like three weeks, three, four, almost a month, honestly, between yeah. recording episodes. I'm really impressed that we were able to do so many so quickly, um, especially since we were having guests for all of them. So we needed to accommodate their schedules and everything. And now we're still like kind of getting back on track kind of thing. It's- I am so glad that we planned ahead that far in advance because literally like the first two weeks of the month, I worked like 65 hour weeks. So I definitely would not have had time to do anything no. podcast related. Yeah. No. That's insane. I hear people working like 100 hours and I'm like, I cannot. I No one should be able to do No one should do that. That's not okay. Yeah, it was awful. I was working like 14 hour days every day and doing nonstop video editing, which you know I hate. I hate video editing. That's all I was doing for two weeks and I wanted to die. So I'm happy to not be doing that anymore. Yay. Yay, finally. Doing great things. And hopefully it's over and you'll never have to really do that again. God, I hope so. Oh my gosh. That has made me decide to remove audio and video editing from my skills list on my resume and be like, no, nobody <laughs> needs to know. <laughs> like, I can't nobody do needs this. to know that I can do Doesn't audio and video work. editing. Nobody needs to know nope. this. I am not... Nope, y'all can't pay me enough to do it. Just tell them you're like that the the young witch finder and good omens who like touches computers and everything crashes. Be like, that's what will happen. Oh my gosh, that would be so great. But yeah, but we're back. We're back to our normal schedule, pretty much, and our pride series. Yes, we're still doing that. The month is not over. We are still celebrating, educating, learning. So that's good. We hope you've been enjoying it so far because we've definitely been enjoying it. I'm enjoying Pride Month. I um, I just bought some rainbow shoes Cute. to cheer myself up. Thank you. Um, so taking good care of ourselves, I hope. And so we're going to dive in with our third episode of, nope, fourth. Diving in with our fourth episode for five how many have we done? Brother Osler, Taryn, oh my God. Bradley, yep. Jesse, uh-huh. and this oh one is number five. <laughs> it's not that I forgot any of them. I just like cannot compute how I just can't do numbers. That's that's all. <laughs> it's because we started a week before Pride Month. And then we just like that's why. got them all out. Which is funny because remember when we were planning this yep. series, we were like, oh my gosh, how are we going to find five <laughs> episodes to fill the entire month of June? LOL, we're going to have six. Yep. It's going to be great. So, all right. Wild. <laughs> so crazy. All right. So, hello, everyone. We do, before we get started, we do need to broach uh, this episode with two warnings in case you don't feel comfortable listening to it, which we completely then understand. We do not want to put you in a place where you are feeling terrible, where you're feeling hurt. We don't want to do anything that will leave you feeling uncomfortable with yourself. All right. So first off, we do not have a, a guest specifically from the LGBTQ plus community in today's episode. That is disappointing, we know, but we did want to take time to share our research and the history that we've been learning about the LGBTQ plus community within this church. 
we are going to be taking it from a few main sources, um, but we're, we're still human. We're not experts, so we may make mistakes. We've done our research the best that we can, um, but we do want to let you know that that's going to be that it's just the two of us back almost back to normal. I do consider myself part of the community, but I don't feel like I'm in a place where I can really speak out for everyone. Um, secondly, we are providing our first ever trigger warning um, because while we do enjoy discussing taboo topics, this is going to take us down a very painful path regarding conversion therapy, suicide, and other really hard topics. It's not easy. Doing in my, a lot of my research, research, I spent a lot of time in tears because it hurts and it sucks. So while we would like people to listen to this episode, to learn the history, to have a better understanding, we do know that this is going to be very hard to hear for many people. So you can close it out now if you can't, if you decide to go on and need to stop at any other point. We're not going to, we're not going to be upset. We're not even going to know. Yeah, we're not going to know. So please do what is best for you. If this episode has the least amount of listens in all of our series and all of our episodes, that's totally okay. We completely understand. We are really emphasizing that this is not a sugary sweet history. We know that no one likes to uncover the hard truth and the painful history of any group of people. I mean, Congress is doing that right now. They're trying really hard to cover up a painful part of our history. So we know it's not fun. We are doing this today because we know that if we want to truly learn, grow, and become better people as a faith community and as individuals, that we need to address and acknowledge our painful past, and we need to learn from the past horrors to ensure that it never happens again in the future. So when we say, like, this is really a big trigger warning episode at the beginning, we mean it. Like, we really want you to take us seriously when we say this now. As we dive in, we do want to let you know that our sources came from a couple of places. So we will be referencing them throughout the episode, um, but we wanted to highlight some of them. We want, And we do want to make sure that you are also uh, seeking out the best sources for yourself. That is what the church encourages us to do. These sources are not perfect or all-knowing, and they will have their own flaws. But we can learn from anything, and we believe that they have important information to share with us. And while we do love the church and we love what the knowledge that the church can share with us, it is limited in this sphere. So online, we were looking at Wikipedia. Um, we were looking at other personal accounts of people who have spoken out in the community. Like we have had Richard Osler and Bradley Talbot on Pride series recently. So we've been looking into their more into their stuff for reference, as well as Calvin Burke, who is a member of the LGBTQ plus community, and he's been really speaking out as a BYU, um, as, as well as as a BYU student. And he's had a lot to share. That's been very helpful. We also were reading a few books, Queer Mormon Theology by Blair Osler, Tabernacle of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism by Taylor G. Petrie, as well as Gay Rights and the Mormon Church, Intended Actions and Un Unintended Consequences by Gregory A. Prince. And just as a side note, so um, I also listened in to a few sessions of a conference, which was the Mormon His Histor History Historical Association, and they say, um, so they just had their conference the other week, and I listened to it online. I believe people can still pay for access to them if they want to, so they were covering topics like race, murder among the Mormons, the LGBTQ plus community, and a lot more. So those are our main sources that we'll be referring to today. So 
Usually, we would kick off a topic by talking about a Wikipedia or a dictionary definition of the topic, but since we are talking about the LGBTQ history in church history, um, we don't have that. Um, so we're going to jump right in with a historical timeline of LGBTQ plus Mormon history. This is heavy and it is wild from start to finish. We will be branching off into subtopics during this timeline that, again, get painful. So this is like one last trigger warning for you guys before we jump in. I mean, yeah. And then you were saying before we started recording how you wanted to be able to include like positive things that were going on. So it's not so painful and depressing, but there really isn't that much to celebrate just yet. So yeah, it's going to be heavy, you guys. Right. So kicking it off with Wikipedia, it's the timeline of LGBT Mormon history on Wikipedia. The quote is, Although the historical record is often scarce, evidence points to queer individuals having existed in the Mormon community since its beginnings. However, top LDS leaders only started regularly addressing queer topics in public in the late 1950s. Since 1970, the LDS Church has had at least one official publication or speech from a high-ranking leader referencing LGBT topics every year, and a greater number of LGBT Mormon and former Mormon individuals have received media coverage, end quote. And so as we go into this timeline, you will see when things really start picking up is the late 1950s, and then it just snowballs into the worst of all worst of all storms so let's jump in we'll start with the 1800s okay so 1842 this was the first known instance of church discipline related to same-sex sexual activity and that was an excommunication for the alleged bisexual behavior of 37 year old church leader john c bennett who was accused of buggery by joseph smith's brother william in the wasp newspaper Historian Samuel Taylor also alleged that Joseph Smith caught Bennett having sex with 21-year-old Francis Higby, though these interpretations of the accounts and the homosexual allegations against Bennett have been challenged. Then there's also the note, though, that the Wasp newspaper also reported that the Apostle Orson Pratt implicitly accused Joseph Smith of engaging in same-sex sexual activity. Whitney. Let me tell you that that story is hilarious yeah it is very what? similar to the is it me jesus no it's not you is it me jesus is it me jesus it's very similar to that <laughs> because basically joseph confronts orson and is like can you prove that i have ever had any kind of sexual relations with any other woman in this location or whatever and orson pratt basically goes not with a woman. Oh my gosh. Yep. And just like mic drops. And that's like the end what? of the story. <laughs> I, when I think back to the way that I was taught about the beginnings of the church and everything within the 19th century, it's like everything was so peaceful. Like all the people were so good, except for the people who weren't good, you know, like outside of the church because everyone else is an enemy kind of situation. But then the more I look back, I'm just like, how did I, how, why don't we know more of this? I mean, some stuff, sure, like, we don't need to know the gossip as much, but there's still so much that we should learn just because then we can have a more objective understanding. Like, we need to know the truth of things. Yeah. Like, 
we can't just be sweeping out things things under the rug. Like we can see that in every other religion, how that does not work. We need to be doing better. I mean, everyone needs to do better. Like I'm calling out all churches, yeah. not just our own. But it's a very thou hast said moment that's true. in that's true. church history, yes. which is hilarious to me. But maybe the Wasp magazine was today's version of the Onion. We don't. Know. Again, it could be rumor. It could be like we don't know. We weren't there. We're not accusing anyone of anything. We are just telling you the story. So, all right, next one. Do you want to go? Sure. 1851, church-controlled legislature of Utah, um, of the Utah Territory, passed a law banning any sexual behavior between males. Brigham Young acted as governor and overseer of passing this bill. 1853, Parley P. Pratt taught that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of the inhabitants' predisposition to lawless abominations and to be fully given to strange-slash-unnatural appetites, lusts, and passions, directly contradicting the teachings of Joseph Smith that Sodom was destroyed for rejecting the prophets. Parley P. Pratt, why are you, why are you saying that then? You know, he's he is interpreting the gospel and the doctrine in the way that he wants to to fit his narrative. Yes. Yes. And we'll see that a lot more throughout this timeline. Yes. It's something that we have to constantly watch out for. All right. 1882. John Taylor excommunicates a group of teenage boys for engaging in same sex activity. They're the first recorded excommunication of teenagers for same sex activity. I forgot to put that point in. Okay. Interesting. 1885, yes, our favorite, B. Morris Young, a.k.a. Madame Paterini, begins performing in drag as a vaudeville female impersonator. His opera falsetto impressed crowds in and out of the church through the early 1900s. Um, Jessica, like I mentioned, we already did talk about Young, Brigham Young's son, in our Scandalous and Spiritual Scoop episode. Thank you. Yes, so super cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Cool fact. Okay, awesome. Maybe not. All right. 1889. Louis Felt, the first primary general president, moves in with May Anderson, and they live together for 40 years, sharing the same bed. Many historians assume that they were in a same-sex relationship, but others argue it was strictly platonic. But according to <laughs> multiple historians and their biographies, uh-huh. it was not platonic. Not even I, a little bit. I love that because... His, there are historians who try so hard to be like, yeah, they're definitely straight. Like no one in history was ever in the LGBTQ plus community. And you're like, but they're in the same bed. Yeah. They're in the same bed. Yeah. If you can afford two beds, you will have two beds. It's going to happen. Like, <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Into the 1900s. 1912. Actress Ada Dwyer Russell of Mormon upbringing entered a lesbian relationship with poet Amy Lowell. The next year, it was reported to the First Presidency that her father, James Dwyer, the co-founder of what is now the LDS Business College, had been teaching young men that same-sex sexual activity was not a sin. Upon learning this, the First Presidency had Dwyer withdraw his name from membership. Ugh, I hate that. All right. Uh, okay. 1926. Mormon raised young lovers Ruth Drake, 19, and Sarah Lundstedt, 22, drank cyanide poison together in North Salt Lake City after being pressured by family to end their four-year relationship and move away from one another. Their tragic love story, complete with love letters, made national news at this time. 
terrible. All right. 1947, church leadership became more aware of homosexual relationships in members in youth and members in Utah and appointed Spencer W. Kimball to preside over all investigative slash disciplinary cases. So Kimball actually ended up becoming like a very big pro- like problem for the LGBTQ plus community. We will dive more deeper into this. That's why I included this one because I knew that he would be the big the one that we would continuously come back to. So this was the first recorded mention of him in the timeline and i was like we gotta keep him in here and what drives me crazy is that because of this because of that uh that calling portion of his role he spent years talking to people within that within the community like he would have been hearing them suffer to cry to beg for some sort of change or relief and his continual action then was to still be like no you're wrong. You're sinning. You are doing these wrong things. It's 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 a choice that you've made. You're the one sinning. And man, he was stubborn. That's so hurtful. It only gets worse from here. Also, 1947, we have to remember historically, is also around the time that like the Red Scare was beginning. Communism. So like you already have McCarthy, you yes. already have McCarthyism happening yes. and people doing mm. like the whole like, I think my neighbor's Russian, I'm gonna call the FBI. Yes. So you already have that kind of tension going mm. on. And then adding Spencer W. Kimball investigating mm. cases of possible homosexual relationships in the church just amplified mm. that even further. So just Well yeah. yeah. And then yeah, and then it's not included here. I think we took it out <laughs> or just didn't reference it. But yeah, like it became illegal basically to employ any homosexuals. Mm-hmm. Like at least, like, in the government status and, like, other businesses could do that on their own and that sort of thing. Like, insane and stupid and hurtful. All right. 1952. The first general conference talk regarding homosexuality was given by Joshua Rubin Clark Jr., who lamented that homosexuality affects men and women. Towards the end of the 1950s, more talks about homosexuality became prevalent during general conferences. So, like we were just saying, um, actually, I'll let you read this quote. Um, So this is from the Gay Rights and the Mormon Church. And so he says, In the early 1950s, when U.S. government hysteria over communism spilled over into hysteria over homosexuality, particularly in the State Department, former Undersecretary of State and now First Presidency Counselor J. Reuben Clark Jr. lashed out at homosexuality at a time when the word was rarely heard from a Mormon pulpit. Speaking to the annual conference of the Relief Society in 1952, he condemned the person who teaches or condones the crimes for which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. We have coined a softer name for them than came from old. We now speak of homosexuality. Two years later, he broadened his audience by condemning that filthy crime of homosexuality during the semi-annual church general conference. J. Ruben Clark Jr., ended up being quite a jerk. He's referencing then Parley P. Pratt's interpretation of why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, not Joseph Smith's. So did Joseph Smith do everything correct? No. Did Parley P. Pratt do everything that was correct? Like, no. But he picked one that was a more hurtful storyline to fit his own narrative. And yeah, and from there, like, yeah, that's when uh the term homosexuality got start, started getting referenced more in the church. Um, the LGBTQ plus community hasn't really had any peace <laughs> since that point. I mean, nope. they never had, but like it grew a lot worse. Yeah. 
which leads us to 1955. So in Boise, Idaho, a gay witch hunt was launched to hunt down gay men among moral panic over several local arrests of males for same-sex activity. This resulted in nearly 1,500 people questioned, producing hundreds of names of suspected homosexuals and creating an oppressive environment engendered by the predominantly LDS population of Boise. So again, like we see 1947, Spencer W. Kimball starts investigating, and then we have J. Reuben Clark talking about homosexuality in conferences, and then it all just spins out of control from there on. Honestly, like it's so clear, like no one really understands anything at this point. They're just using it to build up hysteria, to pinpoint a us versus them mentality where they need to protect their children, where they need to com- co- protect themselves kind of thing. And it just is bound to spin out of control and hurt people. All right. So 1958, Bruce R. McConkie published Mormon Doctrine, in which he states that homosexuality is among Lucifer's chief means of leading souls to hell. In the section on chastity, he states that it is better to be dead clean than alive unclean, and that many LDS parents would rather their ch- child come back in a pine box with their virtue then return alive without it. That makes me so mad. Mm-hmm. I I want to punch Bruce R. McConkey forever saying that. Yeah. Because I've seen a lot of people talk about things like that where it's like, I'd rather they just don't have to, you know, suffer through this affliction. So it's better for them to be dead than to be alive. Mm-hmm. That is never the right mentality to have. Not just for yourself, but for for your relationship with anyone else. It's it's not okay. Yeah. And that culture is still very prevalent today, which is why we need to talk about these things more. Yes. All right. So, 1962. Under President Ernest Wilkinson, a complete ban of any students attracted to people of the same sex, regardless of behavior, was instituted at BYU per the directives of Apostles Kimball and Peterson. The ban lasted until April 1973. Wilkinson received permission in 1967 to request that BYU bishops report any student whom they suspected was breaking rules or who had confessed to violating BYU conduct codes. This resulted in 72 students suspected of homosexual activity reported to the Standards Office, which is now called the Honor Code Office, within the first year of the new policy, and many expulsions and suspensions. Security files were kept on suspected gay students, and student spying was encouraged. This is the first time we hear about this happening at BYU in 1962. And what's worse about all of this is this shit still happens today. It still happens today in 2020. It's freaking insane. The student spying thing is what really ticks me off because that is one of the big reasons I didn't want to go to BYU is because I knew that students were like immediately going to be snitches and like spying on your every move and going right to the honor code office. And I mean... SVU was no different. Like, there were definitely a lot of people who would go immediately to the honor council and, like, rat you out for any tiny little thing. But, like, you're not getting anything out of it. Like, even if you are the snitch, you are getting nothing out of it. Like, you don't get paid. You don't get a discount on your education. Like, you're not getting anything. You're just ruining people's lives. So, like, mind your own business. Anyways. 
Okay, let's keep going. Going down another painful path, 1965, the famous Spencer W. Kimball speech happens at a BYU devotional where he says homosexuality is a gross, heinous, obnoxious, abominable, vicious sin. He continued to explain how homosexual desires and tendencies could be corrected and overcome with diligence. The most famous line is that sometimes masturbation is an introduction to homosexuality. I had to put LOL at the end of that. Freaking idiot. I had to. Just, <laughs> like, yeah. What? During that time, like, they had, like, the dumbest, like, Victorian-era beliefs of how to treat yourself. Like, I think it's it's in his book, that stupid book that needs to be burned. I don't remember the title. Um, where he's like, to avoid masturbation, like, tie one hand to your bedpost <laughs> at night. And just one hand? <laughs> you have another one. Why are you gonna get dead? You have another one. <laughs> I, I know. I, it might have said two, but I I feel like it was only one because how are you going to tie both of your hands? Oh gosh. <gasps> he doubles down in nineteen sixty-nine no. where he continues on his no. anti-LGBT rant by saying homosexual behavior can lead to sex with animals. Why was he thinking about that? I feel very confidently that Spencer W. Kimball was, one, a product of his time. Obviously, like, he was an adult while McCarthyism and that whole Red Scare thing was going on, so he was probably amped up and anxious about that. And two, I feel very confident in my saying this. I don't know it to be true. This is just a Tracy, a gospel according to Tracy kind of moment, okay? Someone had to have come on to him at some point in his life, and it just scared the crap out of him because he probably enjoyed it a little bit. That's the only reason I could see someone doubling oh down this hard yeah. on this kind of behavior. Like, yeah. we don't hit everything that he says because he says a lot of really terrible things, but, like, he's one of the people that definitely says that, like, if you just get married, like, getting married will fix it. Like, getting married will cure it. So I feel yeah. like he was probably one of those people that just got married to cure it for himself. And that's why he's yeah. doubling down. But that's just me. I don't know. And if I offended someone, I apologize. Well, he also said that people gay because they were sexually abused. Yeah. Before. So, like, there's, there's so many weird things and hurtful and dumb and goofy but painful things that get said. Um, but yeah, Spencer John McKimble was definitely a product of his time. I do try to keep in mind that he is the one who helped repeal to to end the the ban on black men with the priesthood. Um, so like not everyone is good or bad. Like we just need to keep improving ourselves and learning better. Yeah. But all right, <sighs> moving on. 1973. The church published a guide for bishops and stake presidents titled Homosexuality Welfare Services Packet 1, which posited that homosexual behavior begins by being molested while also stating not all who are molested become homosexual. It is also suggested that homosexuality is caused by a domineering mother and a passive father, and that misunderstandings of sexuality among LDS people can contribute to homosexuality. As far as changing the sexual orientation of the person, the packet says that the lesbian needs to learn feminine behavior, and the gay man must must be introduced to and learn the heterosexual or straight way of life, and what a manly priesthood leader and father does. Yeah. What? Yeah. What's yeah. 
not everyone who is attracted to the same gender is going to act in a certain way. Like we are all very much our own persons. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. The 70s were the worst of all of the decades that I read through this timeline. Like, I know I told you before we started recording, but the 70s were truly horrific with speeches, publications, and actions by church leadership. So, like, I do not recommend you guys reading all of the stuff that happened in the 70s, but the 70s was the worst. Yeah, well, and I I think, isn't that when conversion therapy also started at BYU? Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Bad stuff. Really, so bad. Okay. 1977, with an invitation from church leadership, Anita Bryant performed at the Utah State Fair. Um, Her presence prompted the first public demonstration from Utah's queer community organized by gay former Mormon Bob Waldrop in what gay former member and historian Seth Anderson referred to as Utah's Stonewall. 1977, under the name Affirmation Gay Mormons United, the first affirmation group was organized on June 11th in Salt Lake City by Stephen Zacharias, formerly Stephen James Matthew Prince. So Stephen organized the group in response to the suicides of two BYU friends who had undergone shock aversion therapy on the campus. The original organization struggled to survive until 1978 when Paul Mortensen, inspired by by an article on the group in The Advocate, formed the Los Angeles chapter. And in 1980, the name was changed to Affirmation Gay and Lesbian Mormons. Through the influence of the Los Angeles chapter, affirmation groups began appearing in many cities around the U.S. There was a session in the conference that I listened to, and the session was called Theologies on the Margins, LGBTQ plus Mormon Histories. And so Joshua Stephen Smith from Boston University shared a talk titled, Where Have All the Women Gone? Erasures and Marginalization in the Lesbian Mormon Experience. It was very interesting because I never really thought about this before, but he made the point of talking about how affirmation was in the majority of all dialogue about homosexuality within the church is all about gay men. Now, is that necessarily bad? No, but you have to include, but you have to be inclusive. You have to realize that the LGBTQ plus community is not all about men. There are, there were plenty of lesbians. The thing is, when you're a lesbian in the church, you are hurt in so many more ways because not only are you a lesbian, part of a community that the church does not really support, but you're also a woman who's probably not going to end up having children with whoever she is with, if she is with anyone. Lesbians were just not welcome in the church and they weren't really welcome in the groups such as affirmation. And so that's why they had to start making change. They started making changes because they realized that they had done something that was not as inclusive as it needed to be, which is what everyone really needs to be doing. All right. 1980. The Ensign publishes an article outlining the church's arguments against the Equal Rights Amendment, including the possibility that it could give constitutional protection to same-sex marriages, thus giving legal sanction to the rearing of children in a homosexual home. And this is pretty much, oh no, this is the second time that we're seeing the church is making some sort of political stance on marriage equality and that sort of thing because the first one was back in 18 whatever with Brigham Young but yeah this is the second of many more to come all right 1981 the church issues a guide for LDS social services it's called understanding and changing homosexual orientation problems so that instructs them that because of 
agency, it is inconsistent to think that a homosexual orientation is inborn or locked in and there is no real hope of change, and that the homosexuality-oriented man or woman doesn't understand what it really means to be a man or woman. I had not considered that before. It is interesting. It's still stupid, but it is interesting. And that at least gives me some insight into better understanding why people for so long have called and considered and believe, still believe today, that being LGBTQ plus is a choice. But it's just, it's still wrong because, I mean, like, mental health issues are not a choice. Having a disability is not a choice. Me being attracted to men is obviously not a choice because men are the worst. And if I had a choice in this situation, I would not choose men. But obviously it is not a choice. So even after bad things happen, people are just like, stop choosing. Like you're obviously still choosing it after you've been beaten, after you've been harassed, after you've been abused in every way by your family, your friends and by society that you're still choosing to do this. The fact that anyone could think that way is insane because no one is going to choose to be beaten up, to be hurt, to be killed for who they are because people are still being killed today. It's just so hurtful. Yeah. All right. 1983. The church handbook is updated to allow church court to convene to consider serious transgressions of homosexuality. Additionally, that gender confirmation surgery was grounds for excommunication with no chance of rebaptism. Anyone who joined the church after receiving said procedure was ineligible for receiving the priesthood or temple rites. Okay, I didn't know that. Me either. Oh. All right. 1990, BYU shock aversion therapy survivor and activist Connell Donovan organized Utah's first Pride March. The marches went right past the Salt Lake Temple, and the event complemented the annual Utah Gay and Lesbian Pride Day Festival that had been held ever since 1986. During next year's march, participants were met with neo-Nazi protesters at the Salt Lake City and County Building. So basically, in that situation, you can either support the Pride March or be a neo-Nazi. All right. 1992, the church published Understanding and Helping Those Who Have Homosexual Problems as a Guide for Ecclesiastical Leaders. This six-page booklet states, quote, There is a distinction between immoral thoughts and feelings and participating in homosexual behavior. However, such thoughts and feelings, regardless of their causes, can and should be overcome and sinful behavior should be eliminated, end quote. It further advises that members can overcome these problems by turning to the Lord. In some cases, heterosexual feelings emerge, leading to happy, eternal marriage relationships. The pamphlet did not frame homosexuality as a disease corresponding to the recent change by the World Health Organization, removing homosexuality as a mental disorder took it till 1992 yeah so it's only been removed as mental disorder for less than 30 years Mm -hmm. which means our parents grew up with that our grandparents grew up with all that i mean i even remember being in psychology class in high school so this was in like 2008 my senior year and being taught that being transgender was a mental disorder, that it was gender identity disorder, and it wasn't being trans, it was gender identity disorder. So we are still learning and we are still growing and moving past things. Right. Well, and then it's like people 
when they don't understand something, they have to make up an, a reason for it. Like that is what we do. And we're not always right. We are often wrong because we do not truly understand something. Yeah. All right. On to one of my next least favorite parts. 1995. You guys, we should all be able to guess this. The family proclamation is read aloud at the General Belief Society meeting. Yeah. Anyways, 1996. Salt Lake City becomes the only U.S. city to have its Board of Education ban all student clubs after... Mormon students Aaron Weiser and Kelly Peterson formed an East High School club called the Gay Straight Alliance. So literally it was in retaliation. They were like, no, we're canceling all student clubs. No, goodbye. I mean, on one note, I do like that they're like, nobody can have them now. So like they weren't just cutting them out from having a club. But but also like, really, you're 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 that intimidated by a couple of teenagers. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so 1997, a poll of over 400 BYU students found that 42% of students believed that even if a same-sex attracted person keeps the honor code, they should not be allowed to attend BYU. And nearly 80% said that they would not live with a roommate attracted to people of the same sex. 1998. This one is a big one for the LGBTQ community. Um, 1998, Matthew Shepard is murdered by Aaron McKinney, an LDS member and Eagle Scout, Russell Henderson in Laramie, Wyoming. So if you don't know this story, let me educate you briefly. So Matthew Shepard was a gay 21-year-old boy who was a student at college in Wyoming. Um, He was literally just walking home from a bar that night and Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson beat him up and left him for dead on the side of the road. Actually, is this the one where he got tied yes. to a yes. fence and then they burned him alive? He didn't burn him alive, but he was tied to a fence and they left him for dead um, because it was, it's Wyoming. And so nighttime, it gets very cold. So um, when someone found him, they brought him to the hospital and he died very shortly after. The reason why we included this, or why I felt like we needed to include this, was because not only was this a huge case for the LGBTQ community in history, but it also went on to become a huge play called The Laramie Project, which won multiple awards. Um, And it was created by a theater group that spent a couple months in Laramie, Wyoming, interviewing residents of Laramie, Wyoming, and asking their firsthand accounts of what happened that night and like everything. And they compiled every interview into a play, a three-act play, which included statements from Russell Henderson's girlfriend, um, Russell Henderson himself, Aaron McKinney, police officers, and Russell Henderson's stake leaders who were all trying to defend the actions that the two boys had and saying things like Matthew Shepard came on to them and was sexually advancing on them when that was not the case whatsoever. They just literally rolled up to him on the side of the road and beat him up. I know we've talked about this so many times in the podcast before, but just because you're a member of the church does not mean that you're immune to making bad decisions and doing horrible things. You may think that you are justified in your actions, but you are never justified in causing anyone physical harm or murdering someone. Thankfully, 
both of these men received double life sentences and are never coming out of prison. Oh, thank goodness. But that is not the case for a lot of cases similarly. This is a huge blessing and a huge victory for justice and for those families and for Matthew Shepard himself. But this does not always happen. And the fact that one of those boys was a member of the church and touted with that perfect title of being an Eagle Scout just makes it even worse and more hurtful. It is insane. All right. So we are going down a uh, still darker path. I mean, we could, we couldn't, we couldn't call out all the murders and the suicides that have happened because of the incompatibility that people have seen and experienced with the LGBTQ plus community and the LDS church. It's horrendous in so many ways, but I do want to share one more um, from 2000. Um, this was publicized from what I have understood, but I do not remember ever hearing about this. So I'm going to bring up Stuart Mattis. He was a 32 year old gay man active in the church. He died by suicide on the steps of a California church stake center during the height of the LDS church's fight to ban same sex marriage in California with prop 22. I am going to then share a section from Gregory Price's book, um, and so he says, in a letter to the editor of BYU Newsnet, published four days before his death and two weeks before Prop 22 was approved by California voters, Mattis described his tortured path through life. He said, my first same-sex attraction occurred when I was seven, and for the next 25 years, I have never been attracted to women. I realized the significance of my sexuality when I was around 13, and for the next two decades, I traveled down a torturous path of internalized homophobia, immense self-hatred, depression, and suicidal thoughts. So his response was that of many young gay Mormons. He mentioned calluses on my knees, frequent trips to the temple, fasts, and devotion to my mission and church callings. Author Carol Lynn Pearson, whose marriage to a gay man who died of AIDS made her particularly sensitized to the homosexuality within Mormonism, wrote, Mattis wept as night after night he prayed until morning, begging and pleading with a God he knew could help him if he was only worthy enough. As a child, he would deny himself a favorite television program as punishment for a homosexual thought, or he wouldn't allow himself to attend a friend's birthday party. His mother wrote, Stewart's entire life was spent striving for perfection. He reasoned that if he were perfect, then he would find God's approval. His efforts became a never-ending cycle. Effort, perceived failure, effort, perceived failure. The harder Stewart strove for perfection, the more he hated himself. He believed that he could not only change, but should change. But nothing worked. So Mattis's letter went on and said that the church has no idea that as I type this letter, there are surely boys and girls on their callous knees imploring God to free them from this pain. They hate themselves. They retire to bed with their finger pointed to their head in the form of a gun. They are afraid of their parents. They are afraid of their bishop. They are afraid of their friends. They have nowhere to go but to lay on their floors curled in a ball and weep themselves to sleep. And then he, he addressed Prop 22 directly. On the night of March 7th, many California couples will retire to their beds thrilled that they helped pass the night initiative. What they don't realize is that in the next room, their son or daughter is lying in bed, crying, and could very well one day be a victim of society's homophobia. The night initiative will certainly save no family. It is codified hatred. 
A few days after he sent that letter, Matt saw himself on the steps of a church where Neely Maxwell was about to speak to missionaries. And from my understanding, Maxwell had recently said quite a few things that were very hurtful to the LGBTQ plus community. So personally, I had not heard this before. Me either. But it is very painful to hear, to know that people have gone through such pain. That is very unwarranted. This is that moment where I feel like church leadership should have been paying attention and calmed down on the anti-gay rhetoric from this moment. Like, I know there were so many moments earlier in history that they should have taken as a warning sign. But this moment where he is saying, like, couples are going to bed happy that they passed this bill, not realizing that their kids in the next room could be on the receiving end of all of that hate and all of that homophobia. And they'll never know because of the way that they are treating other gay people that they don't even know. And that should have been the moment where the church leadership was like, you know what, maybe we need to look at how we are handling things and stop being so aggressive about everything. Agreed on all accounts. I think this is the sec. This is around the time where I believe and others believe that some of the conversion therapy started to stop mm-hmm. on BYU, mainly because there was proof coming out that such therapies do not work. They only cause pain and more suicidal thoughts and actions and so on. But people like to ignore what does not fit with their own narrative of what is right and what is wrong. Um, So as we dive now into the 2000s, within the last 21 years, well, there's, there's gonna be a little bit of light, but there's still a lot of pain. So yeah, so 2002, with heavy influence from the church, Nevada State's question two on amending the state constitution to ban same-sex marriage passed on the 5th after also winning a majority vote in the general elections two years prior. So again, we're seeing more influence from the church on political matters. All right, then in 2006, the church handbook is updated again and leaders are told to collect and destroy all copies of the previous 1998 version. The new version clarifies that the church reaches out with respect and understanding to same-sex attracted individuals. So there is a double issue right here. So yes, there is progress, which is great. But the fact that they're saying to destroy all copies, I know everyone wants to do this when they make a mistake that they just want to sweep things under the rug. But this resolves them of any accountability for their purposeful actions where they have inflicted countless pain on on other people. Mm Mm-hmm. So yes, that is one step in the right direction, but it's also another step back because they're trying to pretend nothing happened. Yeah. All right. 2008, Church Relief Society President Chieko Okasaki stated in her book that, quote, a family with a gay child is not a failed family. It's a family with a member who needs special love and understanding and who has love and understanding to give back, end quote. So I felt like we needed to include this because, as we remember, Chieko Okasaki was the champion for all marginalized people in the church. And she was the badass who said if she had been given the family proclamation in 1995 while she was in the Relief Society general presidency, the general presidency would have made changes to the document. So keep that in mind. 
Oh, but then conversely, also in 2008, the first presidency again urges California members to do all you can by donating your means and your time to pass Prop 8. For those who were not already aware, I grew up in California. I love the state and I was very much growing up in the church. So I did help with that issue and the fact of trying to get it passed. That's the only time I've ever gone out to hold signs. I tried to talk to my friends about it and I regret every action that I have ever taken. I remember feeling so proud of myself in those times because I thought I was making a change. And that just goes to show that growth is important, but also like you need to be more careful about what you're doing and what you're doing with children. Because I was taught that, it also pieced together other ideas I had in my head that were filled with prejudice that I am still today working to get rid of. So the church should not be telling us to do political things. No, they should not. But I do think that it's important that you shared that, Kaylee, because we can grow. We can change. Like, that's the important thing. Like, you learned that what you were doing when you were younger was hurtful and it was an act of hate towards a marginalized group of people. And you learned to do better and to be better than that. And if you hadn't taken that time to learn and break down those prejudices and continue to work on that now, like, you would not be growing as a person. And so it's important that we do acknowledge and address the things that we have done really terribly in our lives. And that's why we're continuing with reading this horrible timeline, because there's a lot of terrible things that we are learning from this timeline that we never want to do, see, or like be a part of ever again in the future. Agreed. Exactly. Thank you. Moving on. So in 2010, that year's edition of the Church Handbook noted that the records of adult members who have participated in repeated homosexual activities would be permanently annotated. It also, it also advised that those who have participated in homosexual activity during or after the last three teenage years will not normally be considered for missionary service. The handbook, too, also states if members who feel same-gender attraction but do not engage in any homosexual behavior may receive church callings and hold temple recommends. It's the worst. All right, 2011. The church website, mormon.org, published a member profile with the headline, I'm Gay, I'm a Mormon, as part of its 2010 I'm a Mormon campaign. Members were encouraged to create mormon.org profiles, However, the profile disappeared from the archives in early 2015. I really, I, I do remember this profile. I remember this profile. I think I remember something like that coming up because that was um, around the time I was in college and I was learning a lot of things now that I was out of my very conservative home in San Diego, such as you can be Mormon and a Democrat, just like you can be Mormon and part of the LGBTQ plus community. And it just really opened my eyes in a lot of ways that were very important I think this was the same person who wrote the blog post or the news article about being a member of the church, being gay, but being married to a woman and having multiple kids. I think it's the same person. We will not go on record as that being the fact, but it does sound like the case. Yeah. I do remember that. I remember them trying to keep it together, but it got removed because they did divorce. Yes. And he decided to live his truth. True to himself. Yeah. yeah. 
So let's get into another complicated situation here with 2015. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of gay marriage. Which is wonderful. So exciting. Brings on some complications in the church, so though because of many reasons. First note, a version of the Eternal Family Manual was released in which teachers are encouraged to ask students to treat lesbian and gay people with greater love, empathy, sensitivity, compassion, and kindness, and to evaluate their attitudes and actions towards homosexual individuals to see if they are Christ-like. This was less than 10 years ago. That is true. 2015. That's like the first time we see real reference of being like, you need to love these people. This kills me. My so I think of that and I think of like my youngest sibling who who would be 15 at that time. That was that was six years ago. After 173 years. Oh, my gosh. Of talking about homosexuality is the worst sin possible and everyone should hate them. 173 years. We finally have one one comment saying that you need to treat people better. 173 years. Sorry, I had to do the math. No, thank you. Um, well, and then also to point out with that, like that's a version of the manual. Mm-hmm. How much else, how much other stuff, if you don't take that class, you're not getting told that, are you? Nope, probably not. You have to hope that you are. And you have to hope that you take it that year or later on and haven't already taken it. Also in 2015, D. Todd Christofferson acknowledges that we have individual members in the church with a variety of different opinions, beliefs, and positions on these issues and other issues. In our view, it doesn't really become a problem unless someone is out attacking the church and its leaders. And he stated that members who openly supported LGBTQ marriage would not be excommunicated. So again... 2015 this is the first time that someone's saying something like that honestly if christopherson wasn't talking out at all about this i'd be really concerned because his brother has taken a a vocal stand as a gay man in the church and i think that christopherson then has the obligation the responsibility to speak up because he's hopefully an ally because of his brother um on another good note so the church made a $2,500 donation to the Utah Pride Center, which serves LGBTQ persons around Salt Lake City. They were trying to make a show of good faith is basically what they were doing. Since we do know how much money they have to a certain extent, I do feel like they could have donated a lot more, but it's still a tiny step. And I think they needed to make some kind of show for political reasons and to point out to members of the church as well being like our stance is no longer this hard line we are softening and you should follow this example yeah but wait it gets worse so then in november of 2015 the infamous policy change banning children of gay parents baby blessings baptisms priesthood ordination and missionary service we were getting close and then they just slapped that on and that was insane i remember this coming out and i remember trying to justify it to myself why this would happen Mm -hmm. i could not come up with a single good excuse me either and i like what osler said in our podcast and what he has written in his book brother osler wrote and explained how he did not have to agree or support this initiative he talked to church leaders about this and they said that's okay you're allowed to do that he brother osler prayed about it and he's like i don't support this like is that okay like can i still be a member in good standing and all the answers were yes 
you don't have to approve or accept every motion that the church makes. Yeah. Because sometimes they do really bad things. All right. So moving forward in 2016, Holland addressed a question on homosexuality in the church's first face-to-face broadcast event for youth on March 8th. Holland responded that the church does not make any attempt to explain why or how homosexual attractions happen and that those with homosexual attractions have complexities in their makeup that we don't fully understand. He continued saying that what the church asks for those inclined to a homosexual feeling is exactly what we ask for those with heterosexual feelings and that the church is not making them second class citizens later comparing them to women who never married. They are beginning to understand that this is just part of who they are. There is no rhyme or reason. It's just part of who that person, their soul is. If you ask just about anyone who is not married and older in the church, such as ourselves, and ask anyone in the LGBTQ plus community, we're going to be able to tell you that there are times where we do feel like second class citizens because of the way we are treated in certain situations. Yeah. So Holland was getting to a point, but he wasn't quite there completely. I feel like this was the point where, I mean, Holland has always been like very much an advocate for people that are kind that are in the margins. And I feel like this was the moment where Holland was like, I don't have an answer. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure this out myself. And I'm still trying to understand what the Lord's will is for this group. So I am saying what I know and that we are still working. We still have work to put in. So I feel like this was a moment where Holland was like saying, we don't have all the answers. We can do better and we need to try to do better. Yeah, so that is an important point. And then he, I believe he also mentioned how the church denounces any therapy that subjects an individual to abusive practices and hopes LGBT Mormons find compassion and understanding from family members, professional counselors, and church members. So that would be nice. We're hopefully working on it. I do believe Utah was actually one of the first states to outlaw conversion therapy, which is very surprising. So in 2017, 12-year-old Savannah comes out to her Utah ward as a lesbian during a fast and testimony meeting, and it is recorded on someone's phone, and then it goes viral. 2017 also marks changes in President Packer's speech and rhetoric concerning the LGBT community, saying that members of the LGBT community have a place in the Lord's kingdom regardless of their gender identity and sexual preference, which is important to note because it is a complete reversal from younger President Packer, who we didn't really talk about throughout the timeline, but in the timeline, he was one of those staunch anti-LGBTQ advocates, and he would talk about it a lot. And there were multiple quotes about him saying, like, basically echoing what Kimball would say. And so the fact that in 2017, he changes his speech and his rhetoric is a really big thing to note because, yes, it did take a long time for him to get there, but he got there. And he was making the changes happen, which shows that, like, even apostles can realize that they were making mistakes and that they need to do better. And they are making steps to make that happen. Agreed. All right, that reminds me of Calvin Burke's talk um, at the MHA conference. It was titled After God's Own Heart, Bond Featherstone and the Tenets of Discipleship Among LGBTQ Plus Latter-day Saints. And he talks about the Apostle Featherstone of how he 
was in the same situation of Packer where he was like, okay, this, you, you, you can't be gay. And he tried to help a young man and be like, you know, if you go on a mission, if you do everything that the Lord asks you, you will be made straight. And I think you should go on a mission. I think you should do this. La -di -da -di -da. And then the young man went on his mission and 12 years later, ran into Featherstone. They were at the temple together where Featherstone was temple president. The young man came and saw him. He was in his thirties by that point. They went to a quiet room and the, the young man told him, Hey, you've told me I would be made straight. I have spent years praying, fasting, doing everything that you have told me to do, doing everything that the church has told me to do. And it is not working. I am who I am. I have had suicidal thoughts for years. I have tried and it has not worked. I have lost so many friends and family through this. And the two of them like were in tears over this conversation. It was then, I wish I'd written down the words and I'm going to have to go back and listen to uh, Calvin Burke's um, essay again. But Featherstone said then that you are who you are meant to be. You are enough in the Lord's eyes. You are exactly who you are meant to be. You are created according to his design. And so it was a turning point for Featherstone because he was finally taking time to listen to someone's experiences, to listen to who they were, to listen to their soul, to their heart, obviously in the right place. And he began to realize the mistakes that he'd made along the way and that he needed to do something about them. It's promising to be able to see that people are able to grow, that I can grow, that leaders in our church can grow. The more that they learn for themselves through, you know, research, through history, through the voices that are being shared today, we can learn and do better because we need to be doing that. So examples like Featherstone and President Packer are exactly what we need in the church right now. Yeah, I agree. That's a powerful example. All right. So 2019, two, year, two years ago. Yeah. Oh, gosh. David Matheson, a top proponent of conversion therapy, announces that he is gay and is getting divorced to live his life as a gay man. I truly do feel that in many situations that the strongest advocates for situations like this, especially in the LGBTQ plus community, the anti people are a lot uh, in the community uh, themselves and they're just desperately trying to find a solution to their own situation that they see as a problem that's why i made my comment about kimball and i mean like you can see that in situations throughout history alone in itself and i mean in some situations it, it's almost funny because you're just like you're clearly messed up about this like you, you you just have to stop and then you will start to feel better about yourself because that means these people are going through their lives with self-hatred every day all right we gotta anyway, keep going <laughs> so close okay so 2020 last year we know this one um byu released an updated honor code intended to align with the church's new handbook the previous honor code specifically noted prohibiting hand-holding and kissing between same-sex couples. The updated honor code does not contain the section about homosexual behavior. The school, however, clarified that, quote, even though we have removed the more prescriptive language, the principles of the honor code remain the same, end quote. And that's something that we talked about with Bradley Talbot a couple weeks ago. So if you want to know more about this, go back and listen to the episode with Bradley Talbot. Yeah, he he was upfront with all of it, and and I remember following all of this on Twitter. I remember everyone getting so excited, and then immediately they're like, "We're not saying you can't do that, but we're saying you can't do that." 
Yeah. They were like, it's not written in in stone, but it's written in our hearts. Yeah. You can still get reported. You will still get put in trouble for doing this. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not a rule anymore. And are just like, yeah. So I am very glad for Bradley Talbot and everyone else with uh, Color the Campus who are doing their best to support one another to create change and to speak up about this issue because that is hurtful and stupid. So that's our whole timeline. We made it through. We made it through, you guys. Thank you for sticking with us if you've made it this far. Um, That was not fun. No. It was painful and hurtful and did not make me feel good. But I think it's important that we are aware of things that have gone on in the past so that we can see how we can move forward. So we do want to do a quick review of some important topics um, and share a lot more quotes from the books because they're good. In Gregory Price's book about the Mormon Church and LGBT rights, he wrote Senior Apostle Spencer Kimball's book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, was published. Prior to miracle, homosexual was a word rarely used within Mormonism, and when used at all, it almost always referred to men. Lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and intersex were essentially missing from the Mormon lexicon. The first time homosexual appeared in the Church Handbook of Instructions, was in 1968, and then it was part of a lengthy list of transgressions that might result in church disciplinary action. No explanations or guidelines accompanied its mention, and thus a single word inserted into an earlier list was all that defined official policy on LGBT issues after 138 years of the church's existence. Insane. Then one other thing that I used to think about a lot of the time when I was right in the middle of my change was the mixed orientation marriages. We have heard of some success stories of these mixed orientation marriages, meaning, you know, like a gay man married to a straight woman. Um, The overall track record of such marriages has generally been dismal, often catastrophic, and sometimes lethal, best intentions notwithstanding. The largest study of the subject showed a 51% divorce rate at the time of the survey completion. Projections suggesting an eventual divorce rate of 69% and the likelihood that successful mixed orientation marriages involved a bisexual rather than a strictly homosexual partner. This is so important. And so this is all pulled from the Mormon Church and LGBTQ rights. And so it mentions Claudia Bradshaw, an LGBT ally from St. George, Utah, who spoke of a particularly tragic failed marriage. They said it's a wreckage that just keeps going downhill and downhill and how much wreckage these families are going through and how hard it is for some of the children. I knew one man who had been a bishop and had eight children and then came out later. He said, I just found my true self. I finally came out. So he wanted to all those years and he knew he knew who he was, but he still married and was doing all the stuff that they had told him to do. And he had eight children. So one look at him and and people are going to think, yeah, he's doing the right thing. You know, like they're going to be like, okay, like, yeah, you can overcome it. You can, you can make anything work. You can still have all those temple blessings. But the damage there was enormous when he came out. He and his wife divorced. And then the kids looked at him and said, you hypocrite. But he did what the church wanted him to do. So it's just been really fractured. They don't even want him to be around the grandchildren. It goes down for a generation or two and that and how that's affected the families. So the fault, the old faulty advice, tell him to go ahead and get married, he'll get over it, doesn't work, didn't work, and it has caused a lot of wreckage. Personally, I feel that if you want to make a marriage work, you're going to do what you can and you're going to try and make it work. 
but truly you're not going to be happy if you have to always hide you're not you can't have as much happiness as you deserve if you cannot be in a relationship where you can be your true self yeah so i know the conversation has gone on especially like within my friends and family that they think that this could work that you know a gay man and a lesbian woman can just be like yeah we'll just make it work um but no getting married is not the solution to all of your problems the situation with this man who had eight children and then finally came out and he and his wife divorced like my heart goes out to him because i know quite a few people where this has happened where they got married because they thought that's what they were supposed to do and that that would fix everything and then years down the road like easily 20 years 25 years into a marriage they realize like they can't keep this facade up anymore and that they need to be honest with themselves and so they finally come out and the whole family splits apart and the kids have multiple problems afterwards and it really tears apart a family when you are not honest from the get-go and i know that like i am speaking from a very privileged space because i am a straight woman and i know that it's hard to come out and live your truth but if you hiding your truth involves the potential of harming other people you need to do everything you can to find the courage to live that truth you have to at least be honest and strong enough in yourself to be able to say like i think getting married would be a bad idea yeah for a church who is very focused on the family we need to be able to do better and making sure that they are truly set up in the best possible way for each person yeah. When we don't do that, then we are not really taking care of families. Yeah. If we're not setting people up for success to be who they are in the right situation, then we're only going to be hurting people. Yeah. Queer Mormon Theology is now one of my favorite books by Blair Osler. It's only been out for a couple of weeks. So Blair Osler says, if we as Mormons genuinely believe that eternal marriages, ceilings, and commitments are essential to God's plan, if we genuinely believe that people in committed relationships are essential to building healthy societies, if we genuinely believe sex should be among should be within the bounds of marriage, we should celebrate all marriages and unions made among consenting adults. She also goes on to say, I suggest we adopt a better model of determining whether a relationship is moral or not. The model provided in this section is predicated on four important concepts within Mormon theology. One, love. Two, joy. Three, life. And four, agency. This model accounts for diverse genders and sexual orientations, including fixed and fluid identities. But it definitely does not insist that anything goes. I propose to use the five concepts of theology to assess the morality of a relationship through scripture, tradition, reason, experience, and the spirit. Personally, this hit me so strongly because a relationship within the LGBTQ plus community, like it, it can be good. It can be healthy. It can be just like any other relationship. The real worry, the real threat to families is going to be bad relationships, like things that go wrong. So we need people and families who are able to love one another, to have joy together, to have agency within these relationships more than anything. Just because you were married in the temple does not assure you a good relationship. Exactly. We need to just stop with this. Let people get married. Let them love who they want to love. I hate this. So Prince makes a really good point in his book where he says, when Mormon theology puts 
such a heavy emphasis on marriage and procreation can you even be a faithful Latter-day Saint if you do not desire an eternity of reproduction and parenthood? Regardless of gender and sexual orientation, I contend that even people who don't want to be parents in the eternities can still be a valuable part of divine creation. But the thing is, we don't even know how creation works in the spirit world. We don't know how any of that works. We we know that there we believe that there is a life that comes after this. We mm-hmm. believe that there is a concept of exaltation where we will embrace an eternity that we cannot comprehend in these immortal bodies of ours and that we can be together and that we can have happiness. Yeah. We just don't know a lot of things about what's going to happen in the hereafter, which we talked about in our atonement series in resurrection but like we don't know how creation works from a god level who knows like it could just be heavenly father and heavenly mother like pointing in the same direction and being like poof we've created something like it could just be that so it doesn't necessarily flow with the same biological human reproductive way that we are familiar with So it's just a matter of we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know what's going to happen on the other side, regardless of gender and sexual orientation. Like that might not play any role whatsoever in divine creation in the eternities. Yeah. So honestly, if you want to learn more about this specific concept, Queer Mormon Theology by Blair Osler is truly a overwhelmingly awesome book to read. Yeah. Very enlightening. It's just really important for us to emphasize here that there is so much that we don't know, and there's so much that the church still does not know. You're allowed to believe that some of the things that the church does is wrong. Cannot say that enough. All right, so wrapping this up to a few final points, I want to share something that Calvin Burke shared on his Instagram. Um, When asked about his thoughts on the future of the LDS church, he said, I wish I could tell the future and what it looks like, but I believe it will look like love and redemption. There is so much in this world and the next for us to learn and explore. We've gone through the history, good and evil, and now we're looking at where we stand and how we can move forward. So we came up with three main focuses on where we invite you to put some of your energies. Yeah. So the first one is room for growth. So this comes from Prince's book. He says, quote, for people who are not gay or LGBTQ, it might feel like church leaders should have room to express and explore opinions like this over time, even in general conference, and that it's okay that sometimes those opinions aren't accurate in the long run. These shifting opinions and incorrect, often psychologically damaging utterances are more than a thought exercise. This is our lives, our futures, our hopes and dreams. And so when you get mixed messaging from leaders about something so personal and so relevant, eventually you realize you can't rely on those flimsy, topsy-turvy opinions to direct your life. You realize it rests upon you to get your own answers from God himself. It's very important. All right. So then Blair Osler shares in their book, the world is changing. Humanity is evolving. The question is, how do we want to evolve? God is not going to stop us. It may seem like no one is behind the wheel when everyone is behind the wheel, but that is not an excuse to avoid introspectively asking yourself, what kind of God do you want to be? That one's my favorite. I love that. And that's actually something that I did not consider. I mean, like I've never really dated, um, but that always caught my attention and has made me think like, okay, I do need to think about the long run a little bit more on who I am and who I want to become in this life and the next. Eternity's a long time, man. It is. Um, all right. So point number two, 
we need to understand that mistakes and bad actions happen. They do get mistakes do get made. We need to accept that it has happened and we need to learn from them, especially when we are the ones making them. So I want to share a quick a quick tweet from Twitter by Bradley Talbot. He said, Today I'm mad it took BYU 22 minutes to condemn the lighting of the Y, yet it has been over 60 years for them to condemn the torture they inflicted upon its own students. And that was Bradley referencing the conversion therapy that was going on. There's so many biographies and stories that have gone out explaining the pain and the torture that these people went through, and yet pretty much all authoritative documentation is gone. Like it doesn't exist. Like no one will come out and say there have been presidents of BYU who are like, this never happened. What are you talking about? They all say like, oh, there's no official records of like this happening. We don't know if it happened. Meanwhile, everyone is like, yeah, but I lived it. So, right. It, it did. Yeah. All right. So overall in that topic um, of understanding mistakes and learning from them is we are allowed to hope and pray for change and growth in the church. Not that doctrine will change, but that we will begin to see the love of Christ better, that we can change the rules that don't always make sense or are right. We're allowed to hope and pray for that. There can't be real, there can't be real equality until Everyone has meaningful access to the abundant and life-saving ordinances of the gospel. And the third point we wanted to hit is focus on your own revelation. So I really wanted to point out these two quotes from Blair Osler because they are very important to this topic specifically. So the first one is, quote, Joseph Smith taught that a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. Prophets are fallible. It would be unfair to them and us to expect perfection from an imperfect being. This is one reason why we have the gift of personal revelation to discern when a prophet is acting as a prophet. And that leads perfectly into this next one, which is continuing revelation is not a task reserved for an elite group of apostles. It is an ongoing process implemented by those seeking to improve themselves and their world. Continuing revelation is the percolation of powerful ideas through a robust network of individuals and influences. We embody continuing revelation. I now see the beautiful queerness of our theology, and I hope that through the book, others will too, end quote. So, I really wanted to highlight these two quotes specifically because we talk about this a lot, that it's important for you to get your own answers and your own revelation and to seek your own truths. Because I love what she said, that a prophet is only a prophet when he is acting as such. Prophets are fallible. We have to remember that even though you are called by the Lord does not mean that you are perfect and that you are set apart from making any imperfections or any mistakes. She explained in a point in her book that think about the times when you receive revelation specific for your life. How often does it get twisted in your own mind because you second guess things and because you question whether or not it happened the way that it happened. And the Lord is just like screaming from above, like, no, it's this way. And you're like, no, 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 no. This way is more comfortable. I'm going to go with this one instead. If that happens with you, with your own revelation, how often do you think that happens with prophets and apostles as they're receiving revelation for a worldwide church? So when we think about President Kimball doing all of those hateful things, I'm not trying to excuse his behavior or his rhetoric whatsoever, but you also have to remember that he is just a man 
And it is entirely possible that every time that he was spewing those hateful things, he was not acting as a prophet. He was acting as a fallible man saying what fit his narrative and perpetuating that. We still have the opportunity, even when a prophet is telling us something, to question it and to ask the Lord if it's true. And it is our responsibility and our duty as members of the church, as the body of the church, to do that. Because if we don't, then we will never truly understand the gospel and the doctrines that the Lord is trying to teach us in this life. Exactly. That is so important for us to realize because we do tend to put church leaders, especially the president and apostles on pedestals. And we, you know, we talk about loving them and adoring them and not worshiping them, but getting kind of close to it. And it is very important that we are aware that they are fallible, that we have to keep in mind what revelation we receive is and how we can really learn to understand it for ourselves. So important. So with excommunication or a loveless life hanging over the heads of the LGBTQ plus community and the church, we need to understand that everything that the church leaders say and approves or disapproves of isn't always technically doctrine. We have the Holy Ghost for a reason. Uh, so Blair Osler says, as free agents, we have the responsibility to seek further light and knowledge. We are not meant to wait idly for commands, but to consciously seek after anything virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy. We are warned in doctrine covenants, for behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same as a slothful and not a wise servant. Wherefore, he receiveth no reward. Furthermore, we should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. As members of and participants in Mormonism, it is our duty to be anxiously engaged in good causes, including broadening our theological horizons to include all truths, including queer truths. We need to be striving for our own revelation at all times. Something that I'm trying to do more as I listen to um, talks and to lessons and everything is to take time during and after to pray and say what how much of this lines up i need to talk with my heavenly parents to figure out what is the truth and what is not i need to concentrate on receiving my own revelation through the things that i am taught and the things that i learn so that i can come to know the truth for myself you do not learn the truth for yourself just by listening to what other people say it is through having that witness with the holy ghost and that relationship that communication with our heavenly parents. Yeah, this is something that we've been talking about for a long time, especially over the last few months, that we need to do our part. I know that there are a lot of people out there who are members or who have stepped away from the church who were very offended by President Nelson's talk about being a lazy learner versus being an engaged learner of the gospel. On one hand, I understand why you would be offended hearing that, but as someone who was definitely a lazy learner and not engaged in the gospel pre-pandemic, I can say that that was a chastisement that I needed to hear because it is our responsibility to seek further light and knowledge. It is 100% our duty as members of the church to not just blindly follow we need to be doing our part. We need to be reading. We need to be praying. We need to be asking questions. And we need to be looking at ourselves and doing what we can to analyze where we are lacking in our understanding or in our compassion or spiritual gifts or whatever. And we need to be doing more to fix those problems and correcting them. 
I think a big step in that process is analyzing where you might have been wrong in the past, figuring out what was incorrect about that specifically, and trying to fix it and repair it, address it, and go forward and do better. And that's a big reason why we wanted to do this episode. It's because there's a lot. There's a lot that the church has done that hurts a lot of people. It cannot be excused. No. And we, obviously, we have no authority to speak on behalf of the church. We are just two random girls who have a lot of feelings and a lot of viewpoints and opinions and a microphone. While we know that our research and our efforts to change and progress does not reflect the entire church, it does make a difference and that we need to keep doing this, not just as podcasters, but as members of the church as a whole, we all need to keep doing this. We need to stay on this path of learning about our history, confronting the problems and addressing them, repenting of them and moving forward and doing better because that's the only way that the church is going to do better in the future is if we all try to do better. Agreed. When I look for hope, I I love these words by Elder Marion D. Hanks. My religion is not weight. It is wings. That is the way religion should be. That is the way the faith should be here. We are supposed to find love and joy and happiness through this. If we're not finding it, then we need to seek revelation and decide what's going to be best for us moving forward to find truth that brings us peace, that brings us that love and that light. And then we can move forward from there. When you find yourself filled with hate towards others, you're not following the path that anyone wants you to follow. Especially not the Lord. Especially not the Lord. You're just going to hurt people, including yourself. And we definitely do not want that. We both know plenty of people who have that kind of behavior and it's not healthy. It's very hurtful and kind of sad. Like we, we all should have that lightness within us to have hope for the future, to have love for one another, no matter how different they are. Um, and on that note, my last quote that I want us to share um, is by Blair Osler. Again, um, they said, we cannot know God if we do not know love for God is love. Yeah, that's why we want to be doing this Pride series. This is why we want to share this information. We need to know this. We need to understand the history. We need to know how, where we've been so that we can start to move forward. And we need to reflect on the hurt so that we can find the love and move forward in that direction. Exactly. So thank you guys so much for joining us. If you made it through to the end of the episode, we appreciate and love you for doing that and for taking time to acknowledge the wrongs that happened in the church history and in the church present with the LGBTQ community. And we hope that you can take this as a jumping off point for you to do your own research and introspection into how you can start where you are to make things better for the future of the church and LGBTQ community, because it all starts with us. We are the active part of our church and our theology. And if we want to see change happen, it has to happen in all of us first. Thank you guys again for joining us today. We will be back next week with a guest. Yes, our last part of the Pride series. So we hope you tune in and have a great time. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye.